The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm Friday. Welcome to you all. You're watching Squawkbox with Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. President Trump follows through on his threat to hike tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods as negotiators, though, prepare to resume talks later today. I have no idea what's going to happen. I did get last night a very beautiful letter from President Xi. Let's work together. Let's see if we can get something done. But they renegotiated the deal. Well, Chinese stocks are rallying as Beijing vows countermeasures, but says it hopes both sides can meet halfway on a trade deal. Uber prices its IPO at $45 per share at the low end of its range, giving the ride-hailing giant a valuation of more than $75 billion. Amazon's Jeff Bezos unveils his vision for space, saying his aerospace company, Blue Origin, aims to take people to the moon by 2024. So the UK has hiked tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods to 25%, uh, upping the ante ahead of the second day of a new round of high-level trade talks in Washington. In response, a statement from the Chinese Commerce Ministry warned that Beijing will take countermeasures against the tariff hike, but did not specify what those would be. Now, the Chinese markets, uh, including the currency, actually having a rally on hopes that there will be a last-minute rapprochement this week as well. Of course, the tariffs came in literally within the last hour as well. Uh, but the fact that there's going to be a resumption of talks today uh, has meant that the Shenzhen, the Shanghai Composite, CSI 300, and the yuan have all rallied off their lows of the last 24 hours. Broader Asian markets uh, look like this, with the Nikkei uh, down 186 points, 187 points as we speak, uh, and the ASX 200 over in Australia uh, trading around the flat line. Really interesting session yesterday. <clears throat> as you've come to expect on the inflation watch so far, uh, dampened PPI data. We've got CPI ahead today. Uh, we saw some pretty damning international trade figures once again with a very, very large negative figure there for the United States. But it was the PPI that most people are watching as they remain on inflation watch as well. But the US markets have had a torrid week. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. Well, we are on high alert today and we have set the scene for a very negative trading pattern over the course of this week. The question whether something happens before the close of Wall Street later on today. Uh, here's a look at the U.S. Uh, Treasury yields. That's been quite important to the direction of trade as we've dropped to uh, fairly low levels on the 10-year, 2.44%, the lowest level since March is what we had. Mm. But uh, by comparison, money is not exactly uh, sticking to stocks this week. And over the course of this week, we have been down roughly about 2-3% uh, to 3% on the major averages. You can see in that window, 2.5% down for the Dow. Uh, in addition to this half of a percent that was lost in session. So this is taking us right back to levels. 28th of March levels is what we've now got 
on the Dow. So uh, the reversal has been fairly swift over the course of the week. Volatility has spiked. US Treasuries uh, as a result. And it's been quite curious to see the movement on that uh, two-year yield, which has closed the gap now with the three-month T-bills. So again, investors are questioning whether there's going to be an inverted curve that starts to materialise. So uh, there's a lot of volatility in those back in the market. The trade tariffs, well, one market in particular where we've seen a lot of impact, and that's been around soybeans. Take a look at the level, 8 to 11.50 on the chart. We've been right back to, to levels that we've not seen since 2008. So huge volatility, displacement too in supply chains with reports that the Chinese are buying more from Brazil instead of the United States while this trade fight plays out. So on that note, let's get out to Eunice Yoon for more in Beijing because the market has been noting the beautiful letter that's been crafted by Xi Jinping. Very beautiful. Very beautiful letter. Very beautiful. But I don't think that's going to make a difference at this point. We need more in a beautiful documentation, not just a letter. Yeah, that's, that's right. I don't think that the um, penmanship of, um, of President Xi Jinping was enough for, um, for uh, President Trump to, to decide to, to, to uh, stave off the tariffs. So the tariffs did kick into place 10% to 25% from the U.S. side and $200 billion worth of goods. I was speaking to one American executive who said that there is no place to hide because uh, these uh, tariffs cover pretty much everything. The Chinese have already struck back. Uh, they, the Commerce Ministry uh, moments ago issued a statement saying that it deeply regrets the latest tariff hike and that it would take countermeasures against those uh, U.S. tariff um, hikes. Now, no word on what those countermeasures are going to be, but uh, most people believe it's going to be some combination of tariffs as well as other retaliatory measures. Now, um, the Commerce Ministry had also said that the conversation is still ongoing. And in fact, the White House had said um, earlier today that the two sides um, had finished their conversation, their working dinner, and then um, they had agreed to uh, meet on Friday to continue the conversation. Uh, the um, conversation, though, is still um, you know, up in the air as to what's going to come out of that. And that's one of the reasons why uh, so many people are, are worried about um, what uh, is actually going to come out of that very meeting. Now, the um, president, as um, as, uh, as uh, Stephen and Karen were talking about, did um, have say that he did receive a, a beautiful letter from President Xi, and this is how he described it. I have no idea what's going to happen. I did get last night a very beautiful letter from President Xi. Let's work together. Let's see if we can get something done. But they renegotiated the deal. I mean, they took, whether it's uh, intellectual property theft. They took many, many parts of that deal and they renegotiated. You can't do that. And I'm different than a lot of people. I happen to think that tariffs for our country are very powerful. And the uh, beautiful letter was seen as a bit of a vanity play on the part of the Chinese. Uh, President Trump and President Xi are still supposed to have a phone conversation, so maybe the equation will change. And there is, uh, guys, a bit of wiggle room for these officials uh, to maybe um, really stop the, the tariffs from affecting the vast majority of goods. Uh, and that's because the, um, the tariffs are only going to affect the goods um, as they depart China today. So if you're putting your goods on a plane, that's kind of a problem because they're going to arrive, they're, they're going to be hit with the tariffs. But if you um, have them shipped over sea, which is uh, usually the case, then you still have a bit of wiggle room, like about three weeks or so before you would actually see the tariffs uh, kicking in.
So choose the long delivery times at this point if you're a consumer. Eunice, thank you very much for setting the scene for us. No speedy delivery. Bojoang joins us, who is Chief China Economist at TS Lombard, joining us from Singapore. I want to get your take on where we stand because it feels as though the Chinese are embarking on a little bit of a charm offensive buying time here with the Vice Premier part of the discussions when he could have pulled out and now this beautiful letter that has been crafted by the Chinese president. Do you think we can ward off an escalation of this trade war at this stage? Mm, for the moment, I think in the short run, we are seeing some escalation. But to me, that these uh, trade uh, talks and especially, uh, also including this 25% tariff hike is part of the negotiation tactic. And at the end of the day, the end game is to get on the table to, find a, find, uh, to sign a deal. So to me, that is a bumpy uh, road. Uh, it's the part of the negotiation tactic but from both China and US side. The Chinese would clearly know the risk of trying to tweak the language ahead of any culmination of a deal. So are there problems? Do we need to assume that there are problems now with inking into legislation, into law in China, some of the changes that the Americans are demanding? Uh, for now, I think that China is seeing that U.S. is putting gun on their heads. So I think that China is very hard for China or domestic political uh, landscape. is very hard for China to accept so far the change in law or some of the enforcement scheme that Robert Lighthizer is pushing for. So to me, that China wants to take less of the compromise and they were hoping that there will be some, some type of compromise from the U.S. But it doesn't seem to be working. That is why the tariffs have gone ahead. Uh, Bo, I want to ask you about symbiosis and substitution. Symbiosis is obviously the very close relationship trading-wise, an important economic relationship between the US and China at the moment, and substitution of that, i.e. you've got one Belt and Road going on, you've got the President of America talking about an excellent alternative, although we don't know what this excellent alternative is. So can we break down this symbiosis and actually for these two very important trading partners, economic partners, business partners, can we see a splitting of that relationship? Uh, we are actually already seeing a slow progress in this so-called deglobalization or breaking up of the China and U.S. I think that there are certain part of the trade components. I think that the, about 25% of the overall trade between China and U.S., they can't really find real alternative source of supply. So I think the overall the size of the trade might decline uh, as share of the overall China and U.S. And because of this tariff. But ultimately, they are still 25%. They can't really escape from each other. And then I think that obviously from China's perspective, they would like to find alternative sources of supply from Europe, from other uh, emerging markets, from Japan and Korea, in order to replace the US uh, sources of uh, imports. And very clearly, there was a relationship between China and the US before Mr. Trump, and there'll be one after Mr. Trump, whether it's another two or six years' time as well. Is there a historical trend here where, and you mentioned deglobalization as one of those trends, where actually we are seeing uh, a, what has been a previously close trading relationship and economic relationship actually historically parting over the long term? And I take with that the 25% you said that they can't substitute. Uh, yes, I do think that the, now we are at the 
infection point of the so-called global, uh, global deglobalization, we are actually seeing a new trend of funding these uh, Asia trading blocks. It seems to be forming. So which, in my view, that the world will break down into the uh, North American trading block, European trading block, and Asia trading block. And within Asia trading block seems to be taking up uh, space or is replacing all this trade volume between China and US. And we've now China, Japan, and Korea, which these are three countries with substan uh, substantial domestic demand, the Asia trading bloc could sustain on its own without having too much relying on the final demand from the US. Bo, just give us a sense of what you saw in some of that data this week then, because factory prices we saw starting to escalate uh, with a couple of key items starting to increase. Are we seeing pressure on the supply chain in China at the same time while the economy is slowing down from some very heady growth rates? Uh, those ones, the supply chain reconfiguration globally will be a secondary impact. I think that if this tariff is going to last more than three months, I think we are going to see acceleration of industrial relocation to ASEAN countries. So I think that the, in the second half of the year, maybe in the Q3, Q, uh, Q3, Q4, we are more likely to see a further slowdown in the Chinese manufacturing investment as a result of this tariff hike. Then overall, the industrial or the manufacturing investment in China will have, de uh, will have declined. And as a result of that, China will have ramped up some infrastructure spend spending in order to offset this decline so that they could keep growth stable. Oh, very good speaking to you today. Very interesting to hear about the uh, historical uh, context uh, here as well. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Bo Zhuang, who is the uh, chief China economist. T.S. Lombard, just worth reiterating the point because... Again, Mr. Trump is a part of history, and, but that process was going on before and after Mr. Trump as well. I remember very clearly uh, moves from the Senate previously, way before Mr. Trump, to punish the Chinese for um, currency manipulation and other uh, practices they deemed unfair as well. So if we're going to see a deglobalization, that is a mega, mega trend that we need to kind of work our way around and for our viewers to from an investment point of view. It is a big one, but uh, I think many would see that Trump has brought things to a head. I mean, the tactics he's Absolutely. been using have been uh, very, very aggressive mm. to the point where, we, you know, we're almost at this end game with a, a deal almost on the table, it seems. And, and now the, the increase in the tariffs, it just puts a huge amount of pressure on China at this point to come up with something. And to, to me, the fact that they can't put this down in some paperwork into legislation that they're arguing over it and want to try and change the game and maybe try and charm the US president and, and get a few concessions tells you that there are issues here that they, they're not able to just cleanly write this in despite the dominance uh, at the, the um, of authorities in China they can't just do what they want on the paperwork and the legislation there is a process that's standing in the way they don't want to well a bit of both for, for you know ramifications for the the yeah. backlash that could ensure um, one company which will be dramatically affected by this, I presume, is Deutsche Post with its global supply network as well. I would suggest a very mixed set of numbers from Deutsche Post today here. 20.6% uh, higher is what the shares have done so far this year. But there is some good news in there as well. Um, they are growing their revenue and their earnings in the first quarter. Um, the total revenue figure climbed to 15.4 billion euros, which is a climb of 4.1%. The operating profit, um, very strong, up 28% to 1.2 billion euros driven by completion and this is the exact point i was trying to make the completion of supply chain agreement in china 
which I thought was very interesting as well. So up 28% on the operating profit figure there as well. Uh, but operating profit at PMP down uh, by 178 million to the prior year figure. Uh, on the prior year figure of two, 227 million. So uh, declines there. But DHL Express up 5.3%. A mixed set of figures. I'm actually very excited to say we're going to speak to Melanie Kreis, who is the CFO of Deutsche Post. We will join Melanie at 8.35 CET. Now, Karen and I have been doing a bit of work on IPOs uh, ahead of the fact that Uber is finally set to go public later today against the backdrop of major market turmoil. We've got Elizabeth Shortsey coming up. I think there's a big conversation to be had about IPOs and the quality of those. And you can listen to that conversation even more if you like. If you can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune into our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. Meantime, for our podcast listeners out there, stick around for some more. The opening calls this morning looking positive despite all the news flow around trade tariffs that have just come into force. More talks today in Washington. We're chasing uh, green for the FTSE in the UK, 27 to the upside. DAX, CAC and FTSE MIB in Italy futures all positive. Uber has priced its IPO at $45 per share ahead of its market debut later today. That puts the ride-hailing app near the low end of its target range. But it is still set to become one of the most valuable companies ever to go public. Elizabeth has the details of this year's biggest tech IPO. Elizabeth. That's right. So we've been watching the share price. We'd expected shares to go as high as $50 each, coming in last night at $45 a share, which puts Uber's valuation at $75.46 billion. So that is below those initial estimates that we'd seen as high as $91 billion. At one point, we were looking at $120 billion, according to some reports. But we will officially be seeing Uber at a market cap around $75 billion as it goes public today on the New York Stock Exchange. This, the company will be offering 180 million shares in this IPO, officially has raised an $8.1 billion, $8 billion IPO. That is the biggest US IPO since Alibaba in 2014. And uh, before that, we had Facebook. So this is, a, of course, still a massive company that is going onto the public markets today. There's been a lot of anticipation ahead of this IPO. And we will be comparing this very closely with Lyft, of course, which was the first ride-hailing company to go public at a much lower valuation. Lyft's valuation was about $24 billion on its first day of trading. The key metrics investors have been looking at when it comes to Uber's financials are its revenues, which are about $3 billion in the first quarter of 2019. But that big figure is the net loss of $1 billion. Uber has so far not been able to make money. It really hasn't quite laid out the path to profitability, despite diversifying its business outside of ride sharing into other segments like freight and Uber Eats, still reporting big losses. And that has been a factor that's weighed on the valuation ahead of this IPO. We'll be looking at a host of other factors, including expected volatility in the markets today to see how that affects trading on the New York Stock Exchange as well, guys. Back to you. Uh, yeah, look, come over, Elizabeth. We're, look, we're, we're, we're mid-debate. <laughs> in a debate about a whole host of things. Um, the investment level of this company at, let's say, it's IPing what, 45 bucks? Yep. This is lower than the value that it sold shares at three years ago to, on a private sale, 48.77? Correct. Uh, amongst those investors there were the PIF of Saudi Arabia as yep. well. Yep. This is quite rare 
or a stock coming to market, normally we see through various levels of funding, and this is a historical fact, so that actually it peaks at the IPO level in many cases, and then thereafter, obviously, the public company goes whichever way it does. But So it's stalled in terms of valuation over the last three years. Mm-hmm. And this has been sort of the poster child of these companies that waited in the private markets for longer than a company normally would. And as a result, there's a lot of concerns from investors right now that its valuation has already peaked because it's been able to have so much funding in these earlier rounds and now it's public and investors are saying how do we know that this company can continue to grow we've been debating who made what uh, out of this because there are about 23 different rounds of funding from what i can see uh, which tallies up to about almost 25 billion dollars that's been raked in through private markets so it depends what time you you got into this investment might mean what type of outcome you have today when this comes to market. But the fact is it's stalled in the last three years. That doesn't happen in the three years up to right. any IPO I've ever seen and from the tech but, arena. But from some of the report cards, and we had one from SoftBank yesterday as they crossed on what their paper profits were from investments. And one of them, of course, has been Uber. And uh, through their vision fund, they've poured a lot of money into uh, Uber investments. They claim to have made $3 billion from their investments uh, in the past 16 months, which is in that time frame. And they well, the, and their expected t- cash that they're going to bring home from this IPO is ten point two billion dollars. So they have about a twelve point eight percent stake in Uber. No small number there, still, despite per- some of that stall and slower growth than maybe when it invested a while ago. Excuse my ignorance, and I have a vast amount of ignorance. Hence, I'm allowed to ask stupid questions. But the the S one filing, um, which accompanies this IPO, has said. Um, it remains far from making a profit, which is not unusual for a technology company or any company for that matter going to IPO, uh, with the company cautioning it expects operating expenses to increase significant in the foreseeable future. And this might well be the key line, may not achieve possibility, profitability. I mean, they, they're, they're saying they may never make money? They, they laid that out in the S1 and it was something that raised some red flags when you're reading that as an so investor. I, I'm an investor. I'm paying seven times trailing revenues, a huge multiple, even though it's stalled over the last three years. And I'm being told by the company, yeah, we might never make money. What is a company for if it may never make money at some stage? The, this, this idea of, it, of Uber being a growth stock that ultimately will be similar story to an Amazon, that even if it takes a decade to make money, at some point it can get there well, that, and that the returns fine. you'll that's get. We, we get that. We get loads of companies getting a free pass because they want to replicate the Amazon model. But to admit you may never make money, any money? You've got to believe in the company and you've got to believe that they're ultimately transforming the economy. They're ch- shaping the way that uh, the w- the workforce looks like. They're changing industries like like transportation and healthcare. So it's a chari- charitable trust for the workers and for the economy. Yeah, it's not actually for shareholders to make money. One can look at it that way. Well, you say charitable trust, but uh, the workers have been striking this week, and they don't feel like that. And and that's one of the concerns that I have is what happens to that cost base at this point in time. Whether you have to see Uber raise its costs. Uh, raise its prices for customers to cover those costs. And you know, some of the uh, information that's being presented on the back of the strike action this week is that the average uh, hourly wage for those Uber workers is far below what the average U.S. worker earns, uh, less than 90% of, of U.S. workers earn uh, that, that amount of money. So it, it seems like there is a real problem for Uber in terms of the pricing of wages. This was something, I was out at the strikes on Wednesday, and this was certainly the concern that we heard from the drivers there. There was a bit of a feeling that the strikes were a bit 
underrepresented in cities outside of San Francisco. There wasn't as much of a turnout as they expected. And a little bit what that speaks to is the fact that there are just so many drivers out there that it's hard for them to have a massive impact on the numbers at the end of the day. And even though Uber is handing out these cash bonuses to drivers, it doesn't come in at a significant amount that enough of them see that as them getting back from this IPO. And I think it's a valid debate and it's an ongoing debate and there is no actual answer is whether we've reached peak IPO valuation, peak uh, IPO process as well. And I think this, this debate healthily can go on. Uh, Gina Francola sent over, who's one of our amazing tech people, sends these brilliant um, stats over about um, all the different IPOs so far this year in the United States. Uh, I think there's a list of 50 IPOs. Um, ranging from all kinds of things. Trevi Therapeutics, which is down quite heavily since its IPO. Lyft down 23.4%. But, but what it showed to me that the companies can have big rallies on the back of their IPOs. Again, if the pricing is right there, I say. Levi Strauss, since their IPO this year, up 32%. But the one that caught my eye was, I think the chap is called Ethan Brown. And he is the CEO of a company called Beyond Meat, which is getting a lot of attention stateside after their IPO because the shares, despite coming off their lid, are still 173% higher since their IPO. Quite extraordinary. Quite extraordinary. And one of the key things of the list of the IPOs that have succeeded is that there are companies on there that are profitable. And there are tech companies That's on there that so are rare. profitable. So I think one of the things that investors look at when you say Lyft is down 25%, but Zoom, a messaging service, is up that amount, Maybe it's because of the financials. One of the worst days to come to market, though, you've got to say, with tariff uncertainty uh, yeah, right in the middle of uh, the, the uh, you know, eyesight for investors. Uh, but a longer-term investor, if you're a stag, <laughs> that's your problem. I don't care. But if you're a medium-term investor, that's a big difference. You can head online to CNBC.com to find out why this year's IPOs are outperforming despite the market jitters. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.